Welcome, everybody. Uh, real quick. And welcome to the show. Welcome to Deering Live. This is the second time on this uh, wonderful Zoom format that we find ourselves in. And today, uh, we are honored to be joined by a very special guest, a four-time Grammy Award winner, a musician, storyteller, historian, a television host who, with a passion for preserving traditional American music and stories. Uh, many of you will have seen him on the PBS series, David Holt's State of Music, which features some of the region's finest musicians, including Rhiannon Giddens, Steve Canyon Rangers, and Balsam Range. In case you hadn't guessed, this is David Holt. Ladies and gentlemen, Hello. welcome to the show, David. How are you doing? Glad to be here. I'm doing great. Excellent, excellent. Now, during uh, the um, proceeds here, if anyone is curious and wants to find out more about David, he can. you can do so at davidholt.com. And he has asked me also to mention that his email address is office at davidholt.com. So he does welcome uh, fan mail, lots of fan mail. Um, also, want to introduce, <laughs> <laughs> also want to introduce our, uh, our, our real host for the day, Mr. David Bandrowski. Many of you saw him last week on the ProQuick uh, session. Thanks for joining us. But uh, So David, you and uh, the two Davids are going to have a conversation today. Uh, and with that, I, uh, I leave it with you. Take it away. All right. Hey, David, how you doing? I'm really great. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to have you. Um, so why don't, why don't we just dive right in and kind of get your your background of how you got interested in in old time music and, and folk music? Yeah. Uh, so I was born in Texas. My family are Texans and um, they had moved from North Carolina, oddly enough, in the 1850s and uh, moved from North Carolina to Texas. And that's how my family got there. Now, an odd thing about it was my great grandfather played the bones, uh -huh. rhythm bones, you know, uh -huh. sound like this. Let me just do it with a little music you can hear. And they weren't musicians. These weren't a family of musicians. It was... Um, you know, just something that got passed down through the family. Here's a picture of my dad playing a pair of bones made by, you see, dad and I look a lot alike. <laughs> <laughs> um, so he's playing a pair of bones made by this guy during the Civil War. He's the one that moved from North Carolina, John Oscar Holt. And uh -huh. so I heard that growing up. I think it just sort of tweaked my ears to something unusual. And, um, when I was, oh gosh, this is actually kind of a long story. But anyway, I went to find the, an old uh, cowboy singer named Carl Sprague. I have mm -hmm. this two here. Um, he was the first cowboy singer ever to record. And he recorded stuff like Red River Valley, the first guy to record Red River Valley and a lot of great songs. So I heard that he was alive and I went to visit him in Bryan, Texas. And, okay. Uh, I didn't know anything about folk collecting or folk songs or anything else. I was just fascinated by the, the fact that there was a guy who was the first guy to record a cowboy song. And I went to see him and he was great. He, he taught me how to play the harmonica in that day. And he, um, you know, taught me the cowboy strum on the guitar and stuff like that. I thought wow. after the day was gone, I thought this was incredible. If you have mentors or people that you look up to, uh, who are not super famous, 
mm-hmm. but have done something really incredible, you can go see them. Right. You can go see them. And I think that's what really started me on the trek. And then I went to UCSB. Uh, I was a art and biology major. I never took any music. But uh, I went to a concert with old Ralph Stanley that was out there at UCSB. Yeah. And uh, I went up to him after the concert and I said, man, I love the three finger stuff you're doing, but I'd sure like to learn that claw hammer style. Mm-hmm. He said, well, you need to go back to Asheville where there's a lot of music or Mount Airy, a lot of music there or Galax, a lot of music there. Uh, he said, Clinch Mountain where I live, a lot of music there. So you just need to go back and find it because there's a lot of people that play that old style. And so I left that very next summer. It was the summer of 1969 with my good friend, Steve Keith, who was a pretty decent climber banjo player himself at that point. You're and still in college at this time or are you just out I'm of college? still in college. Right. And, and we go back to the Southern mountains and, uh, man, the banjo was just like this key that should open up everything. Right. Steve was a good enough player that, uh, you know, we would go visit someone and they'd say, come stay a week with us. And we would. <laughs> right. <laughs> they were just like nice, but <laughs> we didn't understand what the conventions were. So anyway, we stuck around and met lots of great musicians, spent the whole summer going from Georgia up to all the way up to West Virginia, stopping every weekend at a fiddler's convention and just finding this world of people who were born in the late 1800s, men and women who were playing old-time music, playing banjo. Right. So that's how I got going. Wow. And, and did, you, did you move? When did you move to Asheville? So I, I did that whole summer. Uh, you know, most people were going to Woodstock. We were at Woodstick. <laughs> we were just out in the, you know, Thule's, going to these, trying to find the most remote places in the Southern Mountains. So uh, that summer finished, I went back to school and finished college and then took my girlfriend, uh, who's now my wife, and I just wanted her to see it because I'm moving back here. You know, mm-hmm. I have a teaching credential. I don't really want to do that. I have a job offer. Uh, I'm going back to the Southern Mountains and I'm not going to make, I wasn't thinking about making a living or anything. I just wanted to learn the music. And there were so many of these people around Asheville and the, Asheville was so friendly and you know, a modern enough town that uh, I wasn't like a stranger there. And it was great. I just fell in love with the place and moved in 73 after finishing college. And you've been in Nashville ever since? Ever since. I'm at 50 years now. It's pretty good. Who are some of the, uh, some of the, uh, you know, more, more well-known old time musicians that you, that you got to kind of, learn from and, and play with. Yeah, I was very lucky on that score. But it's the same thing that I learned from going to see Carl Sprague is that, uh, you know, most people are happy to see a young person come to learn from them or talk right. to them. Or, um, and that included people like Doc Watson and Roy Acuff. Of course, I had an in, <laughs> an in. I was on Hee Haw. So those guys were part of the show, too. So I got to know them quite well through that. And uh, they loved old time music. And certainly both played their own style of it. Were very influential on me because I I decided pretty early on that I wanted to try to make a living doing this. I didn't have any children and I told my wife, I said, I'm gonna try to do this. 
Right. I, don't, I don't know if I can, you know. I don't right. know if there's no market for it or anything, but I'm going right. to. And so I, I had to look. I didn't have to, but I wanted to look at the entertainers and see how they did it. People like Wade Maynard and Doc and all those, those mm -hmm. professional musicians that were still alive. Right. So I learned a lot from them. When did you get on Hee Haw? And where, where was Hee Haw being filmed? So it started because I was on the Opry first. Um, so I taught this, I, I started the Appalachian Music Program at Warren Wilson College. This was the first program of its kind in the country where people came on campus and took lessons from mountaineers uh, uh -huh. on how to play the instruments. So I had a class in the history of country music and I took them down to Nashville to see the Opry. I had never seen it live before. And, uh, oh, it was so boring. It was just, it was just boring. And afterwards, uh, I got home and I called the manager of the Opry, Hal Durham. I said, Hal? I didn't know Hal. I said, uh, you know, I think you need some old time music on this show. That's, that's what built the Opry. People like the Crook Brothers and Uncle Dave and even uh -huh. Grandpa Jones. He said, well, I'd like to have some younger people on here, but I don't know anybody that plays. I said, well, I do. <laughs> so I went down the next week, and my friend Ann Romain said, if you go down there and talk to Hal Durham, the manager of the Opry, you don't wear like a T-shirt or anything. If you're going to wear a spangly suit, you wear that. So I bought a white suit and a white hat and had a beautiful banjo made, actually. I really wanted to make an impression. And uh, so I went down there, and they put me on. And I was on many times after that. And, and the right. people on Hee Haw were the same producers, and they saw me on the Opry. Right. Wow. I got on Hee Haw. How old were you at that time, about? Uh, 35, probably. Okay. okay. Something between 30 gotcha. and 35. Yeah. So, you know, you play, you, you play Clawhammer style banjo. Um, how would you? Can you kind of go into the, the history of, of the Clawhammer banjo some? How it came to, you know, how it came to the Americas and, and, and then just kind of pick it up from there. Well, it came to the Americas. <laughs> um, well, I think everybody knows that it came as a slave instrument and it, right. when that was is debatable. Some people say the mid 1700s, uh, but it probably came all the way along, you know. I've, I've been to Africa. I was in Mali some years ago, and I met Jelly Baba Sisako, who was a griot, and he played clawhammer style on a thing that looked like a salad bowl with a broomstick neck on it. You know, he had two main strings and then two shorter strings, and he, and he basically did the clawhammer style. Right, so right. I think everybody agrees that there are various instruments that are like the banjo that yeah. you can find in different parts of Africa. And they came here and uh, there's that, you know, painting of the guy playing that was from 1803, mm -hmm. playing a three string banjo actually. And um, so it was here and, and how it made it into the mountains is also debatable. For years, people thought it was um, when minstrel show guys toured the mountains and did little shows in little towns. That's where people first saw it. And some people say it was guys coming back from the Civil War. They had never mm -hmm. seen a banjo before. But when they saw how well it went with the fiddle, it just you know took off. Well, you can imagine if you played fiddle and somebody could do the same kind of thing and back you up on a banjo, 
Right. That'd be, you know, great. Right. And so uh, I, I, I sort of hold to that theory. That a lot of it came back from the Civil War. Well, you know what? I got, I've got a banjo that was made during this, right after the Civil War. Oh, wow. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, groundhog hide for a head and cat gut strings and uh-huh. no frets. Actually, why don't we listen to Georgie Buck on there? Can you cue that one up? Yeah. Uh it's it's pretty kicking for this for such a simple little instrument. This is a song Georgie Buck. Yeah, I love that sound. Tuned down to D. So it, okay. Uh, a G tuning, but tuned down to D. So it's okay, so it's an, op- an, open, an open D tuning, but in the same intervals as G tuning. Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they had to keep it low like that because they were, they were making the strings out of guts of animals. And what kind of strings are in it now? Just nylon strings you're using? No, I make them out of animals. Okay, there's, there's a gut string still. <laughs> no, it's got nylon gut. Okay. Plastic cats. <laughs> but that's not a re- recreation instrument. That's one from the 19th century. Actually, I, it, I had it made. I have the, the original one. Um, I'm sorry I didn't get it out before we started, but uh, that's fine. this guy named Mark Schweiker made this one and copied it exactly, copied the old one exactly. It sounds just like it, too. Yeah. It's incredible. About how wide is that, is that head on it? Is it look like six inches? Yeah. yeah. So they wanted a really small head so it would stay tight all the time. Okay. Because you're you using animal. Tune it down that low, it's still got a lot of body. Right. It it's it doesn't sound dead sounding. You know, it still has has you know that the, the sparkle. Now the, the uh, this one is not tuned up, but let me get this Joel Sweeney banjo. Sure. So Joe Sweeney was. Uh, from Appomattox, Virginia, and uh, he was the first white guy we know about that learned the banjo from the black slaves. And um, so he, he himself is pretty much given credit. I think most people think he made the tambourine style banjo. You can see you could take a tambourine and put a head on it like that, and you'd mm-hmm. have and a neck, and you'd have a banjo. I think this is kind of a curious little, you know, cutaway here. That works. Yeah, that is. So this, this was in the 1840s and 50s, and and then other white guys started learning it. Dan Emmett and all these guys like that doing great uh-huh. with it, and then it became the most popular entertainment in America. They they say that that's how Broadway started, minstrel shows. Uh, uh-huh. There were so many minstrel shows that they opened theaters along Broadway, and it went for many years. And these white guys would put on cork, burnt cork, and blackface themselves, and. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, that was the popular music of the day. And so much of our music still uh, is 
derive from that music. We've just taken a lot of the, you know, racial slurs and stuff out of it, but the songs mm -hmm. were, were just great. And yes. um, so that's our, basically it, created our modern uh three chord song style that with a you know verse chorus verse chorus that kind of thing that's where uh -huh. it all started and it also gave black people a chance to get into the entertainment business they would black up themselves i mean that was just like part of the deal right and uh and entertain and white people begin to say well dang those guys are really good you know <laughs> and that's how Black folks like Louis Armstrong and people like that got into the entertainment business. Right, right. So, the, the kind of this, why don't we talk about, you know, this people kind of debate what old time music is. We're talking about the, these old styles. Uh, but uh, how would you kind of define what old time music is these days? So, I have a little bit different view. Uh, I, I see this as a living music. I'm not playing it as like a, a museum piece for you right. or for somebody else. I'm, I'm playing it as something that I feel and have, have you know, played it enough that I've found a place where it fits inside me and I can put it out as music that's coming through my system just like you do it when you play, you know, your system. It's mm -hmm. your, your music. It's telling something about you. Uh, so I see music, I see old time music as what we call around here is mountain music. And they call it mountain music, I think, here because uh, in, around Asheville, because there's so much variety. I mean, there are people that, that lived in Black Mountain who played four part harmony gospel tunes on uh, reeds, you know, on basically panpipes. Mm -hmm. And there are people that play uh, the mouth bow, like here's a mouth bow right here. You know, and people that did play the paper bag and, you know, all kind of weird stuff. <laughs> Anything and, that was around almost. It, it was a, it was a big, it was a big tent for the music. Uh, yeah. There were great old time piano players mm -hmm. uh, that could just, you know, rip the keys up. They were so good. Lots of different things. So that's all old time music as far as I'm concerned. And right. uh, mountain music is the overarching term. Right. It would include bluegrass. Right. So, yeah, so how, would I know. You kind of, how would you kind of, when a lot of people are confused about the difference between bluegrass and old time string band music? Oh, right. Okay. What would you kind of, how would you kind of separate the two? A repertoire is a lot of it, but uh -huh. the banjo, the way the banjo is played um, is the key, uh -huh. or one of the keys, I think. You know, when Scruggs came in, that was the beginning of bluegrass. When he introduced that incredible right. three-finger style and just, you know, everybody's head flipped off because right. it was so uh, driving, uh, that a lot of people put the old Clawhammer stuff away. And I think nowadays it's considered, it's it's quite uh, separated. The bluegrass guys are the bluegrass guys, the old-time guys are the old-time mm -hmm. guys. Right. They don't, Never the twain shall meet. Is that the way it is where you are? It, it, basically, it seems like it's slowly starting starting to come together. You see people at IBMA play Clawhammer and things like yeah. that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they're young, it's younger musicians playing, and that that line is seems to be kind of getting blurred again, um, which is I think a good thing because it. I do too. I, I think people are looking for uh, a, a niche or a group of people to hang with. And so that's just 
something about human nature. There's a them and an us. Uh-huh. And, uh, and that sort of happened because the type of people that play each of those types of music is, they're a little different. And that was more clear back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Now right. it's getting less so, like you just said. But, <clears throat> um, so did that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've also heard, and you might be able to answer if this is accurate, I've also heard there's a difference in kind of the way the vocal harmony is, is often sung. Like it's a, the way the, um, you know, in bluegrass harmony, four part like bluegrass harmony is a little bit different than you know the way that you know a group would be singing harmony in in, in old time music would you agree with that uh i don't know how i would describe that maybe you know you take somebody like balsam range and their their harmony is very sophisticated right and uh you the carter family didn't do that right their their harmony was a third or a fifth and that's it buddy right right so, yeah, I would say there's an old-time harmony style, but the bluegrass guys use that, too. You know, look at the Leuven brothers. Right. Uh, they're pretty straight-ahead harmony, but just great. Definitely. So then uh, what about talking about some of the different kind of styles of claw hammer playing? Like, Rose you know, Rose. there's... Uh, about talking, was saying talking about the different styles of claw hammer banjo playing. There's, there's you know the round peak style and, and other types. Could you um, kind of talk about those differences at all? Yeah, I think uh, uh, you know the the claw hammer style. I think I think the rapping style, the just the frailing style, was just a rock and tongue, tucka tongue, tucka tongue, tucka tongue, and that's the way Grandpa Jones plays it. It's for people who haven't tried that, and most people don't play that way anymore, it's hard, man. Are you trying to get that just right, that rocking rhythm right. and playing hard? It's it's difficult. Um, and then I think probably my generation, or maybe the generation right before me, Tommy Thompson was about a generation older than me. But then there's a whole bunch of guys like Mac Benford, um, um, Rick Good, that were really wonderful, are really wonderful players. And I think we uh, just, I don't know how it happened, but tried to play the melodies of the fiddle tunes note for note and try to make it really clean and mm-hmm. try to make it really driving. Put in all the drive, but uh, have as many notes as possible. Because you hear people who play so many notes that the tune loses its uh, drive. And loses mm-hmm. its punch, right. and if you um, if you can put in all the notes and keep the drive, you've really got something. Let me see if we got one of these. Uh, okay, well this is a if you can find that three little bird and cue that up. Uh, so this is a song that's you know I was playing with Doc Watson and Merle Watson, and me playing banjo and, and bass player, and you know it's just about as fast and as hard as you can play. And it, I don't know if people would say this is old time or not. They might say it's between bluegrass and old time. I don't know. All right, let's, let's take a listen. Take me home, little Maggie, take me home. Take me home, little Maggie, take me home. Take me home, little Maggie, where the hills are rough and craggy. 
guitar playing as well you know he has uh it definitely has heavy bluegrass influence sounds Western north carolina you know if you look at at, at uh who were the great bluegrass sidemen about half of them or more were from north carolina this part uh-huh. of north carolina right yeah scrubs on down and uh so that's who you played with around here when i first got here there, there really wasn't an old-time music scene so i learned to do that uh and it's fun man it's like you're driving a, you know, racehorse's top speed and just barely hanging on. (laughs) But I don't know what if people would call that old time. I would call it mountain music again. Yeah, yeah. It it gets kind of silly when when we try to classify music too, you know, when we try too much, you know, because, you know, it can can bleed through these different... uh, It always has and always will. Yeah, it's always changing. Yeah. And you get you get especially in traditional music you get into the the you know the traditional Nazis that are say that's not you know in in New Orleans I play traditional get jazz and you know that's not you know traditional jazz that's not enough it's like it's well we're putting our own spin on it or you know there you're putting your influence on it things that you people you play with and your influences yeah it's just the way the music works you know it changes. And I think people who want to hold it in one little uh, ball, it, you just can't. It, it just it will just sort of rot there. It's got to always be being reinvigorated. And, and why do, why do it? It's already been done, probably better. So why are you trying to do it exactly like? <laughs> well, you know, I, I, that's what I always felt too. And I've learned a lot from '78s. Really trying to listen closely, trying to get it just like the record if I can, because you, mm-hmm. you always learn a lot of subtlety right. uh, when you're trying to do that, right. that you never would have thought of yourself. But uh, that's hard to do, you know. At, at ETSU, where they have the Bluegrass and Mountain Music program, uh, mm-hmm. you know what I'm talking about? So I've heard of it, yeah, yeah, East Tennessee University. Right. And you, have a, you can be a major in this music. And uh, they take a, 78 and they learn it like to the exact like just nail it right. and there's something worthwhile in that and it's amazing to hear when you hear somebody doing something from a hundred years ago and it sounds just like that old record 
pretty incredible. But yeah, it's very hard to do. You know, very hard. You know, just yeah, uh, very I, But to answer your question about, I, I think I consider old time music usually what came before 1930, <clears throat> from about 1830 to 1930. Right. And then when mass media came in, it changed, started changing a lot. And mm -hmm. uh, you know, you had the Hawaiian craze in the 30s and blues and all that kind of stuff. Um, well, blues was earlier on than that, and and got incorporated in the music. But I would say anything from 1930 back, you're you're playing some old time music. Right. Here we have a question in from from, um, from somebody, <clears throat> a user Frank Bayek. Um, he he was he was wondering if you could please explain drop thumbing slash double thumbing technique and a good practice routine to develop that skill. Okay, I would say, um, well, first of all, they're the same thing. I consider them the same thing. Okay. Uh, so basically, you just have to, uh, the thing I would do, since you can just drive your family absolutely out of their minds by practicing this over and over, <laughs> is to put your hand across the frets there and practice that on each string. Mm-hmm. And then practice the double thumbing that way, like dun, dun, dun. And you just practice it slowly and steady and find, try to find a groove. Always be looking for the groove. Right. That means, that means a rhythm that really sort of captures your interest, even though it's something as simple as that. And uh, find a way to, for that to be a meditation for you rather than a chore. Do you suggest practicing with a metronome? It's great. Yeah. Uh, so it can drive you crazy, though, too. Sometimes <laughs> you just be like, like the first thing I do when I get up in the morning to play the banjo is just try to make up something. Mm -hmm. Just make up to and play till, yeah, I either have something or, or even if it's something good, I often don't record it or anything. Yeah. Just, yeah. just want to keep that flowing. Uh, and then I'll be working on a song that, that I'm trying to get and work on that a while. And I always go back to that, that little exercise I just showed you where you go a bum ditty on each string and back out to the first string and then the double thumbing. Okay. We have another question from, from Darlene McGrady. Um, they're wondering what old time tune slash song would you recommend for a beginning claw hammer banjo player to, um, to learn on? What tune? Yeah. A good, a good beginner tune. You cannot miss with Cripple Creek. If you can get Cripple Creek to to really, where people start, you know, tapping, mm -hmm. yeah, that, yeah. And then if you give them that, you know, get get that funky uh, seventh note. You know, people love that. And then the high part, you gotta, you know, you can play that a million different ways. And uh, just try to get it clean and steady and never practice your mistakes. There's, there's so in other words, if you make a mistake uh -huh. and you can't get it, get that little part like you want it, you have to break that part down and just play it until you get it right slowly. And then you add the chunk of the next part on either end of that piece and try to get that right. That's the way I practice. Okay. Don't practice your mistakes. That's a terrible thing to do. Is there a specific recording of that tune that you think people should uh, kind of focus on because there's you know there's so many different recordings of cripple creek 
gosh, I can't think of one. Um, okay. No, I can't think of one. Sure. Cotton Eye Joe's a similar type tune. You can do something with that. You, you can make it funky. You can make it lyrical. Right. It works great, too. Here's another question um, from William Norton. It may be a personal preference, but do most Clawhammer players use their index or their middle finger? Uh, I think most people nowadays use their index finger. Mm -hmm. And uh, when I started, I used my middle finger. And then I switched over to the index finger. And now I've had some trouble with my hands. And the muscle memory has sort of uh, gone haywire and I've gone back to my middle finger again mm -hmm. but or both sometimes I use them I switch off and use them both <clears throat> there's a different tone of the middle finger it's usually more mellow right and index fingers more driving <clears throat> so I'd learn them both yeah I've learned them both I usually switch off because the nail will wear away because I, yeah. I don't use fake nails or or anything and uh and the nail wears away on one and then I have the, the backup to use <laughs> I can't I've tried those uh, you know the acrylic nails that you, they paint on right. your fingers and they just the tone just isn't quite right for something doesn't you work wouldn't really make any difference at all but it actually does it, yeah that was kind of my next question and if you used acrylic nails or if you recommend people there have you know there's different picks for claw hammer playing as well um, did you guys I know uh, Deering bought pro pick is there a claw hammer pick there is a claw hammer pick. It's made of brass, and um, it's a little. It's it, it it's gives you a nice bright tone. If it's it's going to be a. It's definitely going to be a brighter tone than your than your nail. Um, there's some plastic claw hammer. Right. This is not what I'm looking for. I want warmth. You want that. Uh, but so here, this is like a. What is this? It's like a. Just a finger pick that I cut off. Let's see. I'm uh -huh. You can see it. So I cut off. That's just. The length of my fingernail. So if my if I break a nail, I can still play. You know, what do you do? I just use my my straight nails because I because I. If yeah, you I break them, what do you do? Well, then I use my middle finger. If I break them both off, then I I stop playing claw hammer and play three finger. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So a pick is probably a good choice for that. A pick, you know, you, yeah, if you, or, you know, you can take like bio, uh, was it biotin that makes your nails stronger, drink lots of calcium, things like that. But That's true, yeah. Uh, another question from, from a customer, Bob Waters, um, as a multi-instrumentalist that you are, um, he finds it challenging to maintain proficiency on every instrument. In other words, there just aren't enough hours in the day to practice every instrument. Um, could you share your thoughts on how you manage your time to remain proficient and further learning new material on, on all your different instruments that you play? Man, this has been a problem to me just recently. Uh, like I said, I was having trouble with my hands, so mm -hmm. um, I, I don't have an answer to that. I, I would... When I was uh, like fully playing all the time, now that the pandemic happened, mm -hmm. all, all the work was canceled, so I don't really have to have everything so sharp. But when I was playing like all the time, traveling, uh, I wanted to keep everything, you know, really honed mm -hmm. down. And uh, I'd probably get up in the morning and and work on the banjo every day, and then pick one of the other instruments and try to. I, I might just go over a few songs with all mm -hmm. of them, but then really work on one 
other one besides the banjo. And do you write original songs too? I do, you know. Uh, I, I never, in every one of my CDs, there's original music and, and uh, I like it. <clears throat> but I never wanted to get known as a singer-songwriter. Uh, mm -hmm. It just There's just so many people doing that. And to me, uh, the essence of what I'm doing is carrying, you know, I don't know, I feel like just recalling her and playing some of Deli Norton's tunes or something, mm -hmm. uh, it just makes me feel good. And I feel like, right. you know, this music is good medicine for people. Right. And, uh, and the society right now needs good medicine really badly. Right. And so hopefully uh, it'll spread. And I'm hoping there will be a revival again of traditional music. Definitely. One thing that I find difficult is, you know, I'll create, I'll get up in the morning, like you said, and I pick up my banjo and I play for a while. And I just, it's, it's just kind of my creative time to just play. And, yeah. but I find it hard to, to keep those ideas to get them down so I can then, you know, play them tomorrow at the same time or, or, or teach them to somebody, you know, play them with a group or something like that. You know, do you have any well, sort of... For. Excuse me? That's what the iPhone was invented for. <laughs> it's record is quick recordings, easy recordings. Little short things that you do. Right. But you never go back and listen to them. But That's what I've done that. And then I end up transcribing myself. And it seems like the most waste of time when I'm doing that. <laughs> uh, I try to, if it's really a good lick, you know, that I just came up with, that's kind of hard and I can't do. Mm -hmm. I try to do it enough times there that it's going to be stuck inside me. Right, right. Uh, well, if, you know found a place <laughs> right <laughs> um let's see here's another question from from theo call candace um i'd like to hear more about doc watson and grandpa jones they're both beautiful people who gave so much to the music world i'm waiting for ours and yours your borders to open up as i plan to fly over next year for the string bean memorial festival david aikman doc watson and grandpa jones have left a huge impact on me and their life journeys are something to be read you want to talk a little about about working with doc doc and, and grandpa jones yeah i'll put in a plug for the cd the one i won the grammy for couple of grammys is legacy and it's i interviewed doc about his life and it ended up being doc's biography he didn't want anybody to write his biography i said well let's just record it you say what you want to say anyway it's wonderful it's wonderful uh yeah so both of those guys wow grandpa jones <laughs> he was a crusty old dude you know uh-huh he was a wonderful man, but he, he he didn't put up with much BS. <laughs> <laughs> I guess I can say this. We're on the Internet, so we're not on. <laughs> there was a thing called a fanfare, and you would go, and all the people who loved country music, who were country music fans, would come to Nashville, and, and the artists would be there behind their table mm -hmm. talking to fans and stuff. And so I was walking around there with Grandpa one day, and every time he passed somebody they say what's for supper grandpa and he'd answer something or just turn away or and finally by the end of the day he was so tired of that a little kid said what's for supper grandpa he said fried motorcycles you little shit roost <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. 
He was great. Um, he was very helpful to me and uh, very supportive to get me on the different shows. And oh, he was a wonderful musician too. I might add. Nice. You know, he was a great harmony singer. And as I said at the beginning of this, if anybody wants to try like the Uncle, uh, the well, the Uncle Dave Megan style or the Grandpa Jones style, that really just whooping on it. It is so hard. I remember one time I was playing on uh, Nashville Now, and they asked us to play a song together. And so Grandpa got up there, and I got up there, and I had my Deering Tree of Life banjo, and uh, which is a pretty loud banjo, no tone ring, but got a wooden tone ring. And uh, I got up there and started playing, and Grandpa came in with his Vega, you know, with a big resonator on, just, you can even hear me at all. Right. <laughs> just totally drowned it out. But that was pretty funny. <laughs> uh, Doc, Doc was a very complex, uh, very intelligent, wonderful person. Right. Was the best musician, the most musical person I've ever met, I think, and I'm right. played with some great ones. But uh, he just knew what to leave out and what to put in, and and it, it seems like the uh, audience understood that. You know, mm -hmm. they understood, even though they might not have been musicians, what he was doing. You know, he never overplayed. He never tried to grandstand. He could do it if he wanted to. Yeah. yeah. But he uh, just found the subtle place, the sweet spot of, this, of a tune or right. an instrument. And uh, I think one of the things I learned from Doc is he could make an old song sound new and a new song sound old. And that was very useful for me to figure out because that opens up your audience tremendously. Right. You're trying to make a living doing the music. Yeah, it's, yeah. I everything from you know his his singing to his guitar playing that and just was he a great singer incredible yeah he was you know i don't think he gets the uh the the accolades kudos thank you yeah. for being a great singer but he really was and the interesting thing about him you know he would think about every song he did he would think about what the words meant now a blind person has a lot of time to think Mm -hmm. So if you're driving around and you're not talking, uh, he's thinking. And mm -hmm. so he would analyze every song. Like he, I remember one time he was telling me about, well, I was asking him about Rise When the Rooster Crows. You know, the course is, I'll rise when the rooster crows, rise when the rooster crows. I'm going down south, da -da 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 -da, down where the sugar cane grows. And he had this whole story worked up out about this guy who's, had to go up north to make money, and he sent money back home to his family, and you know, it, was a, it was a long story. But it gave him uh, access to that person he was singing about, and he would put that in his singing. And he, uh, he was a man that had his emotions right on his sleeve. He could get mad fast. He could get sad mm -hmm. fast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was able to put that in his music. I've, right. I don't think I've ever seen that anybody be able to do that quite like he could. You could really feel the the soul coming out, you know, 
of all of his all of his music. You know, even even when he's playing fiddle tunes, fast fiddle tunes on the guitar, you even feel that that passion. Oh, yeah. It's yeah. not just like it's not just you know, um, it's, not you know it's not just you know, you know, technical technical wizardry. You know, an interesting thing about him was that uh, like we'd be getting ready to do a sound check. And most people who do a sound check, most bands and stuff, they, they go through the chorus, they go through the harmony part, mm -hmm. uh, they try a little bit of the instruments, and then they're done. Right. And they go on and go to the next song or they go back to the green room. Well, Doc, when he had a song he was going to play in the sound check, he played it through 100%. I mean, like he gave his whole energy to that song and right. inhabited every note. And that was incredibly powerful to see. That was a real lesson to me. You don't just throw them away. It's like, ah. Right. He didn't take the music for granted at all. Not at all. And yeah. he internalized it and really let it out just even on a sound check. That's something that you don't, yeah, you don't see that, especially today, you don't see that very often, you know, because a lot of the time it, it, people are thinking of, you know, it's, it's a way to make, a, to make up some money or something like that, but it's not, they kind of lose the, the the focus of why they got into it. Yeah. But um, yeah. Any any funny stories from the road of of traveling with Doc through the years? Uh, funny or interesting? Any any anything that comes to mind? Well, I remember he was he liked to get up in the morning and I take him to breakfast and. Mm -hmm. um, He liked to talk about the history of country music. Uh -huh. Actually, one thing before that, I was just thinking of uh, Jamie's being in San Diego. We played, is it Henry's? It was a kind of an outdoor venue. Uh, Humphreys down in, Humphrey. uh, in the Bay, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we had a gig there, and it was a great gig. I think it was, I can't remember who was with us, but... Um, Anyway, I came into the room the next morning. So you had a hotel that was overlooking the concert area, a mm -hmm. very modern hotel. Right. And I came to the door, and Doc had like blood running down from the center of his forehead down his face. I said, goodness gracious, Doc, what happened? He said, oh, I fell. He said, I fall all the time, but this place, I'm used to a bath. You walk in the door, there's a bathroom, there's a bed, another bed, and that's the whole room, you know? Mm -hmm. But this place had these... Uh, coffee table with like a point as sharp as a dagger you know and he had just fallen he said but i know how to fall i just when i start to fall i just totally relax and i hit stuff on the way down but i don't really hurt myself <laughs> <laughs> now what, uh, what were we leading up to there <laughs> oh so, sorry, sorry. i i have a few questions from uh, from the chat yeah if you guys uh, if you guys are good so I, I, no one can really see me, but I am the voice from beyond. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, no, so early. Nah, just joking. All right, so let's start with a, with a um, this is uh, Gerald O'Callaghan. Uh, I think I pronounced that right. He is asking, how many banjos do you have? Because I imagine he did what I did and saw just a whole host of them in the background there. Let me think. I'm going to guess 10, probably. Oh, I've been moving them in and out. You know, I'm, I'm 73 years old, so it's like I, I, there's no reason to have ones that I'm not going to be playing. Mm -hmm. yeah. I have about I have three deerings, and then a bunch of 
uh, old uh, good time banjos that I have around the house. We appreciate that a great yeah. deal. Glad you like them. <laughs> um, let me see. I have got uh, George McCamey. George McCamey, I'm, uh, apologies. There's a, not easy names to pronounce today. What strategies do you offer for learning Doc Watson Clawhammer tunes? Uh, we just came off of Doc Watson chat, so kind of ties into that a little bit. Uh, really anything? pay attention to the rhythm he's getting. Try to get that as close as you can because most people don't. He played pretty hard. Here's a challenge. Go listen to his version of Shady Grove, where he's playing the banjo, not Merle. And um, he recorded it a bunch of times, but there's several where he played it. And you can tell because his is the one just like, you know, it's hard. It's He's playing hard, but the song is just moving along at such a pace. It's incredible. So trying to get that rhythm that he had. He, did, he never double-thumbed. He did everything with pull-offs and hammer-ons. Um, and that gives it a certain sound. Mm -hmm. I think paying attention to the rhythm and his the the, the dedication which he hits the notes. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Thank you very much for that, um, Maisa. Man, these names are for some reason I'm struggling today. <laughs> I think I'm I think I'm pronouncing it right. I'm sorry. Uh, I think we kind of covered this a little bit earlier on in the video, but. Um, She's asking, what could could you tell me what is the best advice for beginners on Clawhammer style? Now, again, I think we went through it a little bit, but is there, is there kind of one or two things to maybe focus on that, that, that we could get um, Mesa on? Is she struggling? Let's see. So this is the question: is how to start, basically? Yes, if it was just beginning. Like, what what are, what are some key pointers to, to kind of focus on to get going? Just know that it's going to take longer than you thought to, to learn something. Mm. And um, I mean, even Doc used to say, oh, it takes me forever to learn something. Well, it didn't take him very long, but for him, it felt like a long time. Um, try to have a routine, a time when you get up and play and try to do that if you can every day, even if it's uh, just a few minutes. It just loosens your, it keeps everything rolling. It keeps everything lubricated. Um, one of our one of our best, probably most viewed videos that we have actually is a clawhammer lesson with uh, a former, actually a former colleague of ours, Barry Hun, who's a longtime uh, sales manager here at Deering, and uh, for, people latched onto his his way of teaching it as well. And he would always say, uh, "Practice slow, learn fast," was the basic mantra to it. That's, yeah, um, you got to do it slow and don't practice your mistakes, like I said before. Don't practice your and mistakes. But by that, I mean if you make a mistake and you can't get it and you just keep doing it and think, I'll get it in a minute, you don't. Just slow it down until you get it. Right. That's right. very helpful. Yeah. Uh, I have a, uh, three DVDs on how to play the banjo on uh, Homespun. Mm -hmm. And um, I just did another one for them recently because I realized almost all, of, all these DVDs go too fast for people who aren't already musicians. Uh, so I slowed it down and tried to make it really interesting, tried to get the subtleties. It's called um, Climber Banjo, The Basics and Beyond. Yeah. So that's really check cool. That out. That's really cool. And uh, people, people can find this on, on your website, right, David? Pretty sure that's on the website. If not, it's okay. on Homespun Video. Okay. Very cool. All right, I have another question here from Cap M. And I'm pretty sure I know who this is. This is a gentleman 
who uh, I've been speaking to for a long time, and he, he just picked up a Vega White Oak long neck uh, that he's very happy with. But he does ask a very poignant question. And that is, what do you think the most important thing is for the future of old-time mountain and uh, bluegrass music? What's the most important thing for the future of the, of the kind of preserving of that, that kind of music? First, that we all don't get wiped out by some kind of pandemic. <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> Second, uh, that people just keep picking it up. Uh, you know, I've, I've said before that there's, for music to be strong, uh, you have to have the professionals out in front, cut, yeah. cutting a new way and letting people, a wide variety of people hear the music and go, oh, I like that. And then you've got to have the front porch pickers who are the guys that are so good they could be out on the road tomorrow, but they don't want to do that. They don't want to travel. And then you have the back porch pickers, and they're the people that are um, pretty good. Uh, probably couldn't entertain for money very much, but they're great, and they're essential to the backbone of the music. And then you got to have the fans. And if all four of those things are really strong, the music is really strong. And I say, you know, that's it's in flux right now. But really, I've been thinking about this. I think that with this pandemic, we're going to be looking back to for roots and we're going to be saying what's important you know mm-hmm. what is the good yeah. medicine for us Definitely. uh i i feel like it could be well david didn't you tell me that the banjos are selling like crazy right now yeah but people are you know really really going to acoustic instruments you know i think, yeah. I think something I think to connect that. with that's real you know yeah that's great to, to me that's good Really? Yeah, there's there's definitely the, there's something about banjo and acoustic instruments that is uh, just it, it's almost more organic, isn't it? I think, and I think people are kind of turning towards that. And you know, if you look at some of the stories coming out of lockdown and all this kind of quarantine, you know, there's a lot of people focusing um, time on on things like gardening, you know, and quality time with family yeah. and, and and that kind of thing. And I think music in general, but particularly acoustic music, kind of really fits into into that really nicely. So, right. Me too. Yeah. Very cool. Uh, those are, I think, most of the questions I've covered from the chat so far. Um, so, David, I don't know whether you want to carry on. Yeah, we have another question here um, uh, from Paul Fleming. Um, he would like to know if American Music Shop, hosted by by you, David Holt, is is ever going to be available on a DVD. So that was done in 1989 to 1993, I think, or something like that. Uh-huh. Um, and probably not. I think the Nashville Network it doesn't even know where the tapes are. <laughs> we, we've been trying to find the tapes for Fire on the Mountain, which was... Did you ever see that show? I, no, I don't believe so. So it was 95 half-hour shows of everybody in bluegrass and old-time music you could name just about. Wow. And um, I think all those tapes are lost as well. But we're, you know, my mother would record some of them off the air. Right. And, uh, I have those, so we're trying to put those together and put those on online. Right. Have you found any of it online? Any of these? Anybody? You know. Yeah. Post? Yeah. Huh. Let's see. So let's. Here's, I definitely have some requests here for some more mountain music, David. Is there any of the other tracks that you'd like to uh, to kind of get some samples of? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, so people say, what are you doing now? Well, uh, I'm interested in uh, going back and learning tunes that I never learned. To, I just never really good got worked up well is what I'm trying to say. Like 
little stream of whiskey or um, just some of these old rockin' tunes like Uncle Dave Macon played, like this one uh, that you've got in your list there called Whoop 'em Up Cindy. I've been working on the harmonica, which is really fun to play with Clawhammer banjo because it's a perfect complement and uh, makes the whole thing rock out pretty well when it's just like one guy. So can you play that one? Whoop 'em Up Cindy from Uncle Dave. <laughs> Yeah, so that's what I was talking about, like trying to get that rock and sound that those old timers could get. It's yeah. Awesome. yeah, to really make it, you know, to make it, all music has to swing. You, know, you may not have, you know, your typical swing, but it has that. Right. It's all drive and bluegrass, you know, it swings and jazz. But uh, when, it's, when it's right, it's right. And you can feel it. And definitely. Right. Feel it in I that. think of it as groove. Yeah. You yeah. know, you got to find that place where the beat and the, tune and everything are working together mm -hmm. and you know i'm working on it <laughs> that was a that was, was was that in double c tuning or double d tuning yeah. one of those double c, yeah 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 and do you know what banjo you used on that that would have been the tree of life you guys should look at the, i should talk about this banjo before yeah let's talk about that it's a unique banjo it's a great banjo uh so i wanted to I, I did a play called Banjo Reb and the Blue Ghost. There's the poster for it right there. And I was Joel Sweeney's brother, who was Sam Sweeney, and he was uh, uh, Jeb Stewart's personal banjo player during the Civil War. Mm -hmm. So I got to look at all these minstrel banjos and realized a lot of them were four inches deep, like this. You know, most banjos are three yeah. inches deep. Yeah. And uh, I asked different banjo players to make it for me, and they wouldn't do it, but Greg did. <laughs> and he had never done a Tree of Life inlay. This is his first one. And he got yeah. it on S.S. Stewart, did a beautiful job and a heel carving and all this. And uh, uh, no metal tone ring. So it's got a wooden tone ring. So it works great in a microphone because it's not, it doesn't overpower it. It's got a wooden sound and not a tinny kind of a sound. And I really yeah. love it for that. 
And um, what do you think the deeper pot gives to it in tone? It's the same as if you go like this or like this. You know, can you hear the difference of the mic? Yeah, yeah definitely. You can just try it in. And, um, and also, now I got all these cool signatures in it here. Um, Dr. Browse. Well, signatures in there. Grandpa Jones, Earl Scruggs, Bill Monroe, Wade Maynard, Roy Acuff, wow. Doc, and Merle Watson. Wow. So it's, got, it's got some mojo to it. <laughs> Definitely. But then I'm also playing this, uh, the white oak that I got a few years ago. It's thinner, it's lighter. Mm -hmm. it's, it doesn't have that warmth of its tone. But and is that an 11 inch or no 12 inch head? Uh, 11 inch. Okay. I find that works better for microphones for some reason. It doesn't right. get muddy. But this banjo has a little story. Um, we played uh, the Hardly Strictly Bluegrass Festival, Doc and I did. And it was, uh, I had done it before, and there were like 250,000 people. In, in the audience, as far as you could see. And so this year we did it again, there were 500,000 people. Uh, from the stage to uh, to the horizon right. was people. Right. How in the world are you gonna get a banjo to reach that far? <laughs> no mic is gonna do that, you know, it'll just lose the quality. Lose the stuff, yeah. and so I got one of those Cavanjos right. uh, pickups. And yeah. It's a humbucker pickup for mm -hmm. you guitar players. And it sounds great, not to use the whole, just use half pickup and half mic, and it really sounds great. It is for your for your um, for your monitors. Are you using mostly just pickup and no mic, or are you doing the blend for your monitors as well? Uh, usually, they just use the the pickup for the right. monitors because they right. pick up so loud. Right, right. But it sounds good. And do you have? Do are your banjos? They have scoops on it. No, I don't. Okay. So I you always I use those notes. Excuse me. I use those notes. <laughs> they have to lose to scoop it out. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Um, Anything else? Definitely. Um, do you want to talk about your, you know, television's been important in your career. And uh, do you want to talk about some of the television shows? And are you still currently hosting uh, uh, David Holt's State of Music on PBS? Yeah. So we're in the fifth season right now. And I uh, have a few more to record if we can just do it in this pandemic time, um, we can get together and shoot it actually. That should be on in the spring or fall. It's been on for four seasons already. And uh, if, you, if you get PBS, you can get it. If you get uh, Amazon Prime, it's on there, David Holt City Music. Mm -hmm. And if you go to PBS Passport, you can see all the shows on there. So it's out there, and uh, it's, it's been great. We've had everybody from like Bruce Molsky to uh, Rhiannon to uh, we have Keb Mo coming up, hopefully. Terrific. And wonderful um, young black performer, uh, Jerron Paxton, if you ever heard him. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, killer, just killer. Yeah. And, you know, we try to have a wonderful mix of everything, uh, traditional music. So that, that'll keep going. The other shows I've done over the years was a show in North Carolina that was on for 30 years called Folkways. Uh -huh. That's gone now, but uh, Fire on the Mountain, like I mentioned before, the one for the Nashville Network, that was the, the really great show. And then American Music Shop. There's probably other ones I can't think. Wow. Do you still do, and then do you still do uh, the Riverside Jazz? Oh, yeah. No, that, that finished after 25 years, just a couple okay. of years ago. 
Okay. That thing. I'm glad you heard that. That was a great show, wasn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that was. Uh, I was lucky to be part of that because it was what was happening in the black community in the cities at the same time of the kind of music I was interested in from the you know the 1900s to the 1930s or 40s. Right. Same era, but different groups of people. Definitely. So it was fascinating, and I got to meet some of those guys too, like Joe Williams and. Lionel Hampton and all those kind of folks. Oh, wow. That's very, very cool. Um, I have a couple more things out of the, out of the chat here, if you don't sure. mind. And then yeah. I know that uh, to see where we end up from there. So a, a very valid point from Skoberg. He says, do you know how many instruments a musician needs? One more than he currently has. Um, <laughs> so that's right, a wiser part. statement. I'm part of the 11-step program. <laughs> One more banjo and I'll be cured. Exactly right. Um, and then uh, a big fan here says, Hi, David Holt. My grandma is a big fan. Every time we go on long rides, she will put a CD in her car from Live and Kicking and that one storytelling festival. <laughs> Great. Hello yeah. to his grandma. <laughs> okay. And then one last question. Um this is from Cap as well. He asked the, the, the question earlier on, but he, he says, any good tips on developing good rhythm? I'm really struggling with that now and I can't totally get the bounce I want. Uh, I would think I would start dancing. <laughs> Some kind of movement, body movement dance. So you get it in your body. It's not, it can't just be in your fingers, or your fingertips. It's kind of got to be in your whole body. Uh, so that'd be one thing. Playing with a metronome probably would be good. Find somebody to play with you who's got good rhythm. <laughs> Torture them. Um, I, I agree with the body moving thing. I, I think that's a, that's a really big point mm -hmm. on, on just playing any musical instrument. But it's, it's, if you're static, then you're not you're not moving with the music, which is kind of a, one of the points of music anyway. Right. So move with it and it will flow through the instrument. It sounds a little cliche, but I think that's absolutely spot on. I think uh, going for different types of music too, and just, just clapping along. Yeah. That's really all you, all you want to find is that what we were talking about before, the groove or the, what, what did you call it? The swing. The, yeah. Yeah, the swing, right. We're just looking to find that something that's compelling. Let's see, I had a little, uh, never mind, I had a little uh, tambourine that just had the most incredible sound. I don't know, I'd say clap along with music. Yeah, yeah. I like it. I like it. And I think listen to a lot of music. I think a lot of, a lot of people forget, that are trying to play an instrument, forget that you need to actually listen to, to music and really enjoy you know, enjoy it, like really get into it, not just as a background thing, but to listen to it and take it apart in your head. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's fun. Keep it if fun. You, yeah, keep it fun is always the biggest thing. I always tell students, you know, if you're starting to get frustrated. You know, you don't have to be, you don't have to be a, a professional musician. You just have to have fun doing it. That's. The I remember I once saw Pete Seeger. I did a, doing a show with him and let's see. And he... He was like this to the whole audience. You know, it was like 500 people. And he just went, listen to that. Isn't that beautiful? <laughs> the tuning. 
I thought that was pretty cool. Exactly. A million times he strummed that chord. He's still just fascinated. Still, by still fascinated by that sound. You know, that just the yeah. I can, I can feel you there. Yeah. So, uh, where can people pick up some some of your recordings that we've talked about? Uh, you know, I looked on Spotify. And gosh, they don't have squat of my stuff. Right? <laughs> uh, look at my website at davidholt.com. That's that's where. Okay. Uh, money back guarantee. If you don't like it, send it back. We'll send you the money back. <laughs> don't have to send the record back. Just let us know. Because I think, that you know, we, w those of us who are musicians, and you guys know as well, you just put blood, sweat, and tears into those recordings and to have them not being heard sits right. in the garage. Come right. on. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, is there you know we've 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 covered a lot here. I, I think we might want to wrap it up unless there's anything that um you want you want to share right now or any any other questions coming in from from the viewers. Uh see if there's any questions and I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening and uh for playing the banjo and supporting Deering. They're great folks. And we we want to thank you too, David. We appreciate you uh supporting us over the years a great deal and flying the flag. Um, yep. And uh, and thank you again for your time today. It's, it's truly, truly an insight and an honor to sit here and listen to you talk about those, uh, those marvelous times and stories and, and just insights into into this world that we, uh, that we live in as far as the banjo goes. So thank you very much. Um, thank you to everyone who tuned in. There's quite a few yeah. of you today. We appreciate it. tons of really good questions. Um, David, any, any passing words of wisdom before we sign off and then we'll, we'll, we'll call it a day. This David? Or the yes, other you. Uh, yeah. I'm sorry, David. Oh, yeah, I don't care what oh. David Banjowski has to say. It's really all about you right now. He listens to me all the time. I listen to him all the time. Yeah. I'll just tell you a little Doc Watson story. Um, so, Ralph Rensler was a folklorist up in New York and he wanted to come down and see if he could find Clarence Ashley if he was still alive. He had recorded, uh, Clarence Ashley had recorded The Cuckoo Bird uh-huh back in 1929 and he yeah. just didn't know if he was alive or not well he met him at uh union grove festival and he said you know i want to record you but we're going to need a guitar player and clarence said well I, there's this guy he's about 40 years old now but he's been the best guitar player around here for a long time they call him doc watson and uh let's go get him and so they drive over to doc's house and he had to do a, he had to have a foot log to get across the creek. And Doc is blind, so he, every day he had to walk across his foot log. Anyway, they came to the house, and it's kind of a, just a small little wooden frame house. And Doc didn't have anything but a Les Paul electric guitar and no electricity. So they got in the truck, and they were going to the place where they were going to do the recording. And uh, Ralph Renzel was thinking, how am I going to get rid of this guy? Some you know, a rockabilly, hillbilly, I got a, this isn't going to work with an electric guitar. And Ralph had a, a banjo with him and he was playing something and the doctor said, let me see that, son. And he took the banjo and he began to play <laughs> this great version, their family version of uh, Tom Dooley. Mm -hmm. He played the cuckoo and Ralph realized that then he had the real thing. And that's right. how Doc really got discovered. Oh, wow. Thanks for listening, story. everybody. Great story. Thank you, David, for your time. And uh, stay safe in North Carolina. You and, guys too. Uh, hopefully we'll see you at a festival soon. Definitely. Okay. All right. All right. You take care. Thank you. Thank Bye -bye. you, guys.